1: Hey, it's Max, before we get started, I wanna tell you quickly about the Masters in New Arts Journalism program at the School of the Art Institute of Chicago. So it's a two-year program, grad school program, based in Chicago, where you're gonna learn to write about art and about culture. And not just write, you'll learn how to take photos, make podcast episodes, lay out your piece, Basically, you get two years in the beautiful city of Chicago to learn how to cover the arts, to learn how to cover culture. It's a fantastic program. We've been working with them for years. And I really recommend if you are interested in learning how to do that work, go check it out. You can go to saic.edu slash long That's S-A-I-C Dot edu slash longform. go check them out the application deadline is in january so go uh, go hustle and do it now here's the show hello welcome to the long form podcast i'm max Linsky i'm here with my co-hosts aaron lammer evan Radliffe. gentlemen hello welcome welcome back what's good what's happening <laughs> it's nice to see you guys again i've missed you we took a week off. We didn't even uh anything through the feed. That was just Is uh, that intentional or unintentional? It was intentional. It was intentional. I okay. couldn't think of a rerun that made sense the day after election day, you know, that we'd have to decide before election. There's just I couldn't think of one thing that anyone would run here. That was an excellent <laughs> choice that I never heard about, but I totally agree with. Uh, but now we're back in the wake of the election. Uh, it felt quite clear to me who I wanted to talk to, and that's Olivia Nuzi, who covers the White House and the Trump administration for New York Magazine. Uh, she has actually been supposed to be on the show a couple of times over the last several years, and hasn't worked for one reason or another. But I feel like we got like we got her on the best possible week, um, and Absolutely. it was nice of her to take some time because I think it was a pretty crazy week if you were covering the White House. Uh, but I also think it's been a pretty crazy four years if you've been covering the White House. And we talked about uh, the toll that it has taken on the people that work there. We've talked about the toll it's taken on her. We talked a lot about sourcing and how she develops sources in the White House and how she thinks about anonymity and granting anonymity. Um, and uh, and then we also just talked about what it's like to like you know get pulled into the Oval Office and. Have Trump and Pence and a bunch of other high-ranking officials put on like a whole show just for you. Uh, so, you know, I understand the White House better than I did before I talked to her. And uh, I'm glad that I did. Hey, if you're uh, discovering uh, something new yourself, learning about something new, why not share it with others with an email newsletter? I'm gonna, I'm going to predict it right now. The next four years are going to be full of email newsletters. Don't miss out on it. Start one today with MailChimp. They make it easy and are with you as you scale up into whatever it becomes. Thanks to MailChimp. And now here's Max with Olivia Nuzzi. Hey, Olivia, welcome to the uh, podcast. Thank you for doing this.
0: Thank you for having me. I'm glad it finally worked out.
1: I know. We've been trying to do this for literal years. And uh, somehow I feel like we waited till the best possible week.
0: Yeah. I think the last time that we tried to do this in like a serious way, it was right around the time of Donald Trump's inauguration. So there's something kind of perfect about, <laughs> about us doing it right when he is voted out of office.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's um I guess it's a good week for me to talk to you, but I'm not totally sure if it's a good week for you to talk to me. I imagine that you are um, pretty exhausted. We're taping this on a Sunday night. How has this week been for you?
0: You know, it's been hectic, but that has been true of the Trump administration and the Trump campaign for the last six years, I think. I mean, since June of 2015 things have been hectic and there's something really nice about everyone paying attention to this together at the same time like the press corps is all trying to figure out the same thing people are really engaged in a way that maybe they weren't previously and really interested in any little piece of reporting and um, it's nice when it feels like a group activity when it's done hectic, rather than just like suffering alone.
1: Wait um, it hasn't these last four years haven't felt like a group activity to you?
0: <laughs> not always. It's not the same way that it has been in the last few weeks of the campaign. I would say in terms of like the press corps, I felt a real shift when Donald Trump was diagnosed with coronavirus, where it felt not that it was adversarial or competitive in like a, a serious way before, but it kind of felt more like we were all one newsroom in some way. I felt a kind of shift. And I I feel like the I have noticed that people are just so much more engaged and paying such close attention in a way that they really weren't prior to the last few weeks.
1: You're talking about readers when you say that.
0: Yeah, I'm talking about readers. I'm talking about people who, you know, even if they were paying attention, were not like totally obsessed the way that they are now. And there's something like really nice about that.
1: It's a different week when some significant percentage of America is not sleeping and just watching cable news 24 hours a day. That's different.
0: Yeah, I think like um, who, like Chrissy Cheegan tweeted something about how she likes when we all stay up together. It was like the middle of the night one night this week and I was thinking about that. Like it is really nice. It's nice to like not feel like you are like part of a little like zombie faction of humanity that's like obsessed <laughs> with this stuff and like eats and sleeps and breathes this stuff and, like, you're not really a part of society. It's nice when everyone else is kind of, like, pulling an all-nighter with you.
1: Well, help me understand that that moment after he was diagnosed with COVID. What changed around the press corps? Like, what? Uh, why was that the moment where it started feeling like one newsroom?
0: Well, I, I should start by saying that I'm by no means, like, the expert on the White House press corps, right? Like, I'm not there every day by any means. You know, I kind of drop in when it's relevant to what I'm doing at that moment. But, you know, it's like any other beat. You know, sometimes it felt like people were being very competitive with each other. I don't, It never felt like adversarial. It never felt like, oh, fuck you, you got that story, I wanted it. But there was something, for some reason, I think because there was, like, everyone was paying attention in the public, and we all wanted answers to the same questions when Trump was sick. And it was a very simple story. Like, when did you last test negative? That's not a hard question. <laughs> it's not mm-hmm. a. It's not like this um, complicated tale of, like, Ukraine or Russia where you have to understand 50 different characters and this rotating cast. It's, it was a pretty simple story where, like, he was sick and we needed information about, like, when and how and why that happened. And the White House was just being completely insane and shitty and not giving us basic information. It just felt like a bit of a team activity and it was nice. And maybe I'm more sensitive to that because what I do is a pretty like isolated thing compared to people who work at newspapers and newsrooms with teams. But I mean, to the extent that you could say that there was something nice about, about covering this stuff, I would say that was nice.
1: I wonder, just hearing you say that, I wonder whether part of that, like, coming together, I mean, the reality was that the president had also put the White House press corps in danger, right? Right. Like, part of the reason that that information was so vital was because it was a story of grave national security, but it was also like, um, hey, I was with you at this time. Mm -hmm. Did you have it then? I imagine it was pretty personal, too. Right.
0: I mean, a number of reporters did get sick. And so I think that probably had something to do with it or just kind of contributed to the urgency.
1: Were people pissed?
0: Yeah, everyone was pissed. I mean, a lot of White House officials were pissed. I mean, this surfaced again when we learned that Mark Meadows, the president's chief of staff, had tested positive and a number of like senior White House officials who you would think would have learned about it in like a normal way during contact tracing or from Meadows himself learned about it when Jennifer Jacobs from Bloomberg tweeted it and reported it. And that is not the first time that that has happened in the last couple of weeks, which is fucking insane. Um, (laughs) And like, I would get fired from my job if I put my colleagues in physical danger and put, you know, their family members in danger. But this is just not a I mean, I've said this before, but it's like the definition of an unhealthy work
1: environment. What do you mean by that?
0: I mean, literally, I mean, that people are getting sick there all the time and uh, they're in danger physically. And, you know, anyone that they live with who might get sick too is in danger. But also it is just, I talk a lot to officials and people who've been in Trump's orbit for a long time about their, I think it start. it really started to emerge More openly, I think, when um, Brad Parscale, the former campaign manager for Trump's 2020 run, when there was like a standoff of sorts at his house in Florida uh, a couple weeks back and he ended up being um, held and having his like weapons forcibly removed from his home after he was threatening to harm himself and reportedly harm others. And... I talked to a lot of people and people who like hated Brad Parscale and were like, you know, part of the crew of people leaking against him and trying to make him seem like some criminal grifter, which he certainly might turn out to be. But maybe out of guilt or out of feeling just disgusted, we're talking about how like this place, meaning the campaign or the White House or the president's orbit, just destroys people and how they all destroy each other. And there's been more soul-searching about that from the people who stayed until the end than there had been in the past, at least in, based on my conversations. You know, it's not the most introspective bunch of people as you can imagine, because how else could you exist there if you were? But there has definitely been a bit more of that at the tail end.
1: I have so many questions. I, I do I have so too. Many questions. I do too. I
0: have <laughs> well, more questions than <laughs> answers.
1: <laughs> well, I guess first of all, how do those conversations take place? Like, are people calling you and just saying like, Olivia, like, I I need to talk to you. Like uh, (laughs) I've really been thinking, and there's there's something pretty toxic about this environment. Like, how how does that work? How does it happen?
0: Not quite like that, but it depends on the person. You know, like the other night I was um, speaking to one of the president's advisors for a story. And the story was not about, his advisors. It was about him. But at one point during the conversation, I tried to talk about whether or not this person regretted doing this at this point and you know whether or not the loss changed anything, I guess, about how they felt about their decision. And this person was just like, oh, Olivia, I'm not going to be doing that right now. I know what you're trying to do. <laughs> and, and I'm not in the mood for that. I'm not doing that. Um, so I, I often strike out. I mean, overall, it's a group of people who they're much more inclined to feel victimized just as the president is than to feel like they are doing the victimizing but you know occasionally you kind of get a shred of introspection from one of these people during these conversations but it's it's not normally like you know the middle of the day my phone rings and someone's like oh i've been thinking and i i just need to tell you this right it's it's more often <laughs> me like asking A million questions and kind of working questions in about the person's culpability or how they rationalize what they do.
1: And how has that tone changed in the last week?
0: You know, I I wrote a bit about this in a piece I wrote. I think I wrote it on Friday. It's coming out in the November 9th issue. But something sort of funny started to happen over the last couple of weeks where I started to get messages from officials and from people in the the president's orbit, like, hey, oh my God, like we got to talk when this is all over. Can't wait for this to be done, like X many days left. And then I'm free as if like, you know, they were forced to be there and, you know, telling me that they had so much gossip to tell me now that it like didn't matter anymore. (laughs) And, (laughs) you know, there is this kind of, I think of them as being like this anti-professional class of operatives, right? Like there are these people who vaulted very far Uh, further than they would have if like Jeb Bush had been elected president. And they took this opportunity to have these jobs that they never would have had otherwise. And they put up with a lot that they didn't agree with because they cared more about being close to power, regardless of who had the power and regardless of, you know, what it was doing to their party or to their country. And, now there is a certain segment of these people who realize like life is long and life is longer in Washington and like, oh shit, there's life after Trump and I'm going to have to maintain relationships with reporters or with people outside of the administration who didn't do what I did. And there just felt like there was this kind of moment where the oncoming boss Seemed to sink in, and people started Hmm. to think about how to recover their reputations and how to survive going forward. And then on election night, like when there was that second or it was a couple hours where it was like, oh, shit, is he going to manage to pull this off? All of a sudden, those people went like radio silent, (laughs) And and I was thinking, oh, they must be thinking like, oh, never mind. I'm not going to gossip and spill about, you know, my colleagues who are shitty to reporters because I'm probably going to stick around if given the opportunity. And then everything was back to normal after he formally lost.
1: Hey, I'm going to put things on hold for a second because I want to tell you about the Masters in New Arts Journalism program at the School of the Art Institute of Chicago. So this is a two-year master's degree in Chicago that's going to teach you how to cover culture, how to cover art, and do it in whatever medium you're interested in. So writing, photography, audio, some combination of all of those. You can learn the design piece. You can learn technical pieces at SAIC. But really what you're going to learn to do is figure out what you think about culture and be able to convey that to an audience. They've got incredible alumni, people who have made shows at VH1, been art correspondents in Berlin, directed galleries, managed social media for museums. And if you're interested in this stuff, if you want to figure out how to do it, The Master's in New Arts Journalism program at the School of the Art Institute of Chicago is really an incredible way to do it. First of all, you're in Chicago, which is fantastic. But then the program has students from all around the country and all around the world. South Africa, India, China, South Korea, Russia. It's a pretty special thing. And right now is the time to apply. The uh, application deadline is in January. So go check it out s-a-i-c dot e-d-u slash longform. That's s-a-i-c dot e-d-u slash longform. If you're interested in doing this work, you really should check them out. Now let's get back to the show. What do you think when you get messages like that? How do you interpret them? What does it bring up for you when you when you hear these people who you've been talking to for years say, I, you know, I, I can't wait to tell you everything now.
0: <laughs> well, I mean, my primary thought is like, of course, I want to be told <laughs> whatever gossip there is, right? Like I'm not going to turn down gossip. I'm very interested in how these people manage to live with themselves. Right. And like, what are the stories that they're telling themselves in order to convince themselves that what they did actually isn't that bad.
1: What is the story they're telling themselves?
0: It depends. Like, I wrote a story recently about, it was kind of like an anonymous profile.
1: They're like the Republican operative one?
0: Yeah. And when it occurred to me, I was doing my eyeliner, which is the only time I ever get any ideas. <laughs> and, and I thought like, oh, what if I wrote a profile of one of my sources, but I wrote it without outing them. I just wrote it the way I would write a profile but without any of the specifics about who they are and kind of meditated on the whole business of being anonymous and keeping people anonymous. And that person is an establishment conservative, unlikely to work for fringe characters. And that person rationalizes what they do by saying, you know, if you leave the field, you're just like leaving it for the worst possible people to fill in your spot for you and, you know, make things even worse or even more insane than they already are. That You hear that a lot. It's like the Jared Kushner rationalization, right? Like, you don't know what we have prevented, but you can't prove that, right? So you have people like that who say it's better to have people there as some sort of barrier to Trump's worst impulses. And then, you know, there are people who I think are unwilling to accept that their individual choices might be important at all. You know, people who are not cabinet secretaries or not on paper super important, who kind of think if it weren't them, if they didn't take the opportunity, it wouldn't mean that things were different broadly, right? Someone else would have just taken the opportunity and they don't think too hard about what it is that they're doing. And then there are other people who were there from the beginning who didn't think that this would become the like moral clusterfuck <laughs> that it became because it didn't seem very serious at first. And they were able to kind of get by for a long time without really thinking about themselves and the choices available to them and what effect those their choices might have. And so, you know, I guess the answer is like, It varies depending on who you're talking about. But overall, I think the commonality is like the key to living with yourself is to not think too hard about it. (laughs) That seems to be how all of these people operate.
1: And do you think that they are in for some kind of reckoning, no matter what the story they might be telling themselves is?
0: I think it's possible. I mean, I, I think we have a lot of examples of how short people's memories are especially in Washington, right? Like you don't have to look any further than the Never Trump movement being embraced by Democrats in the last couple of years, which is just full of people who supported or promoted or were architects of the Iraq war who became liberal heroes. So if that could happen, I'm sure that there is a universe where you could be a former Trump campaign person or a former White House staffer in the Trump administration, and you could manage to find yourself accepted in polite society again. But I definitely have had conversations recently with White House officials who understand that, you know, oh, no one's going to want to hear from me. Who's going to have any patience for that and, and are not really thinking about how to be accepted publicly going forward?
1: Can we talk a little bit more about sourcing? Yeah. You were saying that um, sometimes it was people who on paper didn't have a lot of power who would tell themselves these kinds of stories. And and it made me wonder whether those people, you know, the non-Cabinet officials, whether they made for better sources. Like, is there any correlation between the power someone has and how valuable they are to you as a source?
0: Not across the board, like not as a rule. But I think, you know, there are certainly people... Who were or are great sources who a normal person would have absolutely no fucking clue who they are, but you know their proximity allowed them to you know be aware of a lot and to kind of sneak under the radar. and in some ways those are like my favorite sources. like I, I was talking to someone yesterday who um, was a great source in like the first year, I would say of the administration. And this person happened to like have a desk that that was like in the middle of everything, but like they weren't important and nobody ever really seemed to notice them. And so they would just hear all sorts of crazy shit and write shit down and be texting reporters all day and leaking constantly. And it was like having a mole in the West Wing. (laughs) And that was amazing. That was a great era. And, you know, that person... Would they have gotten away with that if they were a senior member of the president's staff, if they were the chief of staff, or they were the vice president? Like, probably not, but I don't know. It's I wouldn't say it's true across the board that people with less power are better sources, but they certainly have less to lose. And maybe that makes them more open to leaking.
1: How do you develop a source like that? Like, How do you make yourself the person that they want to text?
0: It depends. I mean, early on in the administration, it was like the Wild West. It was all day long. All anybody did, it seemed, was leak about people they hated, people they wanted to get fired. (laughs) Like, you know, leaking against people in order to kind of puff them up, to deflect attention from other people who they were hoping wouldn't get fired. Like, it was just insane. Uh, One of the first or it might have been the first story I did after I started at New York Magazine, was about Reince Priebus and Steve Bannon and how much they were fighting. And it resulted in, like... The White House was so obsessed with this that, like, it resulted in Reince Priebus and Steve Bannon, like, spending an hour on the phone with me, trying to convince me that they loved each other and, like, that they were the best of friends and they would, like, go to sleep texting each other and, like, like, they hung out all day. Then, like, they fucking hated each other, like, absolutely hated each other. But the White House was just, like, obsessed with all this shit.
1: Yeah, why did they care so much?
0: I mean, it's the same thing, like, when... The president called me into the Oval Office and it was like this ensemble of like cabinet officials and like important people in the government being paraded in.
1: This is 2018.
0: This was in, yeah, this is in the fall of 2018. Like that happened because I was reporting on like a pretty silly like palace intrigue question it was why trump had not yet fired his then chief of staff john kelly despite like trying to fire him several times um that ended up eating up like half a day for some of the most senior members of the white house staff in the administration and that is what they were consumed by most of the time was really petty stuff and you know dealing with the leaks that were coming from the people that they were like eating lunch with. And that's true to this day. Like, you know, I wrote a story about the Trump campaign a couple months ago now, and they were just consumed by infighting and spent all their time. It felt like dealing with infighting. And in some ways, I think you could argue that thank God, because what would the Trump administration have accomplished if they were not so preoccupied with all of the infighting going on behind the scenes?
1: I want to talk about that. I mean, I want to talk about the stakes of what you've been covering for the last four years, but in that moment when you're talking to Priebus and Bannon, or when Trump pulls you into the Oval Office and there's an incredible story about this, but basically you were, you were doing this piece about whether or not he was about to fire John Kelly and There was essentially like a play put on for your benefit where Kelly and Pence and all of these incredibly prominent officials sort of got paraded in front of you to talk about how swimmingly it was going with Kelly and Trump. And, you know, in these moments when these people are basically putting on a show for you, A, what's going through your head? And B, like, how how do you handle it? What do you do?
0: I mean, in that moment, I, you know, I was on deadline. Adam Moss was still in charge of New York magazine. And we were relaunching like our politics section intelligence or something like that. And so it wasn't a print deadline, but like they really needed my copy in time because of this relaunch. It was supposed to be like the main story um, for this relaunch. And I had stayed up all night struggling. I'd been reporting it for like, I think two or three weeks or something like that. And John Kelly was like one of those people at the White House who inspired like all of the fucking crazy people to come out of the woodwork and leak you all sorts of things that were like probably not true, but that you'd have to spend two days like going down the rabbit hole on to try and figure out because it might be true. And I was just like really fed up by the end of this three week or two week reporting process and like really sick of dealing with all these lunatics like dealing with more lunatics than I would normally be dealing with because John Kelly was one of these people that just like activated the craziest factions of Trump world. And I had stayed up all night to write like 600 words about like John Kelly's military service. Like I was completely fucking it up. I like did not know what to do. And so I went into the white house at like on no sleep whatsoever and went in to go interview a few different officials for this piece at like the last minute. And I, at the end of my second interview, I just kind of lost it. And I said to the official, who's like a senior official in the administration, like, I'm so sick of dealing with you people. Like, everyone's a fucking liar. All of your colleagues are insane. I can't believe anything any of you guys are telling me. Like, you won't talk to me on the record. This is just fucked up. This is insane. And it was when I was leaving right after that interview that my phone rang. I stopped to have a cigarette on the driveway and talked to a photographer that I'm friends with. And um, I saw I had a missed call from Sarah Huckabee Sanders or from a 202 number that ended up being Sarah Huckabee Sanders. And she was like, are you still here? And she asked me to come back into uh, by her office in Upper Press, which is like the series of rooms behind the White House podium in the press briefing room. And I went back there and I remember she just looked like really, I couldn't figure out what the look on her face was, but she looked like kind of gray and like in retrospect, I think the look on her face was fear. (laughs) And she told me to put my stuff in her office and to like follow her because like he wants to see you. And she didn't say like who he was. And so for a second I was confused and I put my stuff in her office and I came and followed her. And then, um, They had me wait outside of the Oval for like a minute, maybe. And I turned on my recorder and I just like, you know, standing there kind of nervous. And then they brought me into the Oval and it was just her and Bill Shine who was in the communications shop at that time, the former Fox News executive. And Trump wasn't there yet. And then after like a minute, Trump like walked in, in like this kind of dramatic way. And I thought like, did he like leave so that he could enter like and have like a dramatic entrance. And like, I've interviewed him before and every time I see him at the white house specifically, like I grew up with Donald Trump as like, Donald Trump has always been a fact of my life. Like I grew up in the tri-state area. Like I grew up watching the apprentice. I grew up reading the New York post. Like there's never been a time when I have not been conscious of Donald Trump. And so when I see him, I just always kind of think like, oh, this fucking guy. Like, that's kind of like my internal monologue. (laughs) Like, even if I see him in like a really like noble setting, like, you know, behind the resolute desk, I'm just like, oh, like this fucking guy. (laughs) Um, And so that's kind of how I felt then. And then the rest of the interview, it wasn't that long. I think it was like half an hour maybe. But as you said, it was like just this procession of like, cabinet officials and Mike Pence and the secretary of state and like just like totally insane and I like I was recording myself obviously but I was also aware that like the president might be surreptitiously recording me or like a foreign government might be recording and so I was just kind of focused on not sounding nervous you know I I think I was 24 or 25 and so just like not letting this like group of the most powerful idiots in the country like (laughs) rattle me, you know? Um, And at one point I remember Mike Pence was like standing over my shoulder kind of very awkwardly with like his hands dangling at his side because Trump like didn't tell him to sit down. And so he was just standing there and he was standing over me and Trump had like yelled out for his secretary who at the time I think was Madeleine Westerhout who has since... Been fired and like written a book, like many people there. But he yelled out for her to like bring me a list of his accomplishments. Cause I think I'd asked him, like, what, like, what are you talking about? Like, what accomplishments when he said that? And he, <laughs> yeah. she came back in with this, like, these two pieces of computer paper with like large type on them, like bullet points that just, like, got more and more deranged as you as he went through them. It went from, like, you know, the Supreme Court or, like, tax reform to, like, you know, most social media followers, like, of all time. Like, it was, like, not a list of accomplishments by any normal standard. But I was holding that list with Mike Pence standing over me, and I, like, realized that, like, my hand was kind of rattling a little bit, like, and I had to, like, quickly, like, put my hand down and kind of sit on my thumb so that, like, he couldn't see me involuntarily, like, shaking a little bit. (laughs) But, you know, what was going through my mind, I just was trying to figure out when it made sense to interject with pushback to what he was saying. Because there are stretches of that interview, like any interview that he does, or like any rally or whatever, where he's just talking, just in, like, kind of rambling stretches where there's no logical place to break in and push back and ask a follow-up. And so I was trying to be ready to break in when it made sense. But I also didn't want to push back in a way that would not yield more time and would not yield more insight. Because I didn't think that it was worth having like a a fight with him about a Rasmussen poll. Right. Because – what's he going to say? Like, oh, you're right, Olivia, I'm actually not doing that well. Like, he's not going to say that. (laughs) Um, But I, I guess I just wanted him to keep going as much as possible. And so I tried to, when I pushed back, I tried to make it worthwhile, you know? So like, I was just kind of, Trying to listen more carefully than I think sometimes I I normally do when I'm doing an interview (laughs) and not sound like an idiot in the event that we were being recorded by like Russia or China or something. And
1: (laughs) it's funny. There's something funny to me about the fact that you were like, you were worried about what Russia thought.
0: Well, I was worried about it. Like, you know, I was already recording because I remember one time I had gone to interview him and I didn't turn on my recorder right away and he had said something kind of. Gross about my appearance, but I didn't have my recorder on at that time, and I like then like had to wait to ask him to put it on in front of him, and I didn't want that to happen again. But then I was also very nervous that if he realized I was recording without talking about it, he was gonna like flip out. So Bill Shine looked over at me at one point and was like, "Are you recording?" And I was like, "Of course." Um, because I didn't want it to sound like I, like I thought it was even a question. And then Trump said something like, but this is just for you, right? You're not going to like play the recording. Right. And I was like, well, it's not, you know, it's a magazine. It's not like a podcast. And he was like, okay, yeah, that's fine. (laughs) I was like, okay, great. But Yeah, I wasn't worried about what like a foreign government would think. I was just worried about like, if let's say the White House says, what are you talking about? That never happened. Like, we never had her in the Oval Office for this interview. Like, and I have to release the audio. Am I going to sound like I'm terrified or am I going to sound like I'm not being tough enough on him? You know, I just wanted to not sound like an idiot, which is, you know, normally what I'm trying to do, but I'm not always successful.
1: What is the gross thing that he said to you?
0: I mean, it wasn't gross, not by his standards. But I I was profiling, I think it was the first time I was profiling Hope Hicks and we were in Trump Tower and she brought me up to interview him and she was very nervous and kind of blurted out when we walked in. She was like, This is Olivia. She's very young. <laughs> and I was like, What the fuck? <laughs> like, what kind of intro is that? You know? And then Trump was just like. I kind of like eyed me up and down and was like, Oh, very young and very beautiful. And then like, I was just ca- like, what do you even fucking say to that? And so I just extended my hand to shake his hand. He was still sitting behind his big desk in his office in Trump Tower. And I remember I, I think I described it in the piece It's a GQ piece. I like extended my hand to shake his hand and he just kind of like looked at my hand. Like he wasn't sure like what one does with someone's extended hand. And then he was like, Oh, Right. And he stood up and shook my hand, but it like took him a minute to grasp that that was like how people greet one another. (laughs) It seemed it was very, very strange. And I'll never forget how soft his hand was. Like it was almost wet. It was so soft. Like it was unusually soft. It was very strange.
1: That's such a gross detail. Yeah. Um, You like mentioned a couple of times when you're telling that story about. Being nervous and about not wanting to show these incredibly powerful idiots to use your language that you were nervous. And what were you nervous of?
0: I wasn't actually, I was nervous about like, is my recorder going to malfunction? Like, am I going to ask the central questions that I have to ask, or am I going to get like. Sidetracked and like a asking about the wrong thing and like, am I going to? You allow were worried about him? doing
1: your job well.
0: Yeah, I was like, am I going to allow him to kind of accidentally steer me off course and focus on something else? Because the way that he talks, I mean, we've all heard the way that he speaks. He gets into these rambling long stories and he relives the Republican primary and he relives the 2016 general and like he relives the success of the apprentice. And it's like, am I going to get excited by something that he brings up and start asking him about like how he came up with sleepy Joe or how he came up with um, low energy Jeb and like not ask the central thing that I have to ask. Uh, Or am I going to get sidetracked fact checking him on something that he said about a poll or something that he said about Robert Mueller Um, Um, And it was also, I was nervous about, um, I wanted it to be worthwhile, you know, for my purposes, journalistically. I mean, we've all watched interviews with Trump that are like useless, right? Where Mm
1: -hmm. he doesn't
0: say very much that's revealing at all. And so I guess I was nervous about learning the things that I wanted to learn and about being aware of my surroundings, right? Like I wasn't taking notes while this was happening, I remember being nervous about like remembering exactly where Mike Pence was standing, exactly where Mike Pompeo was sitting, exactly what the president was doing with his hands, that kind of stuff.
1: I want to touch on something that you've kind of touched on a little bit, which is this sort of exchange with sources. And I'm just going to read back to you, if you don't mind, this passage from that Republican operative piece, because it really struck me when I read it and I reread it again before we talked And it hit me a second time, so I'm hoping we can talk about it for a second. Do you mind if I just read your own words to you for a second? My own self-serving justification for granting anonymity to Republicans connected to or able to provide insight into this White House is simple. If the choice is between being lied to on the record or told the truth on background, I will choose the truth every time. Even though every time I choose the anonymous truth, I make it easier for this system of secrecy to continue. Actually, that's too generous. It's more truthful to say I'm part of a system that enables political leaders to have it both ways, to indulge in ugliness and irresponsibility and to distance themselves from their own actions. The press provides the alibi as it prosecutes the case. That last line, the press provides the alibi as it prosecutes the case, has really it's stuck with me for, you know, however long it's been since you wrote that piece. And it's made me think so much about this job that you do. And I don't know, Olivia, there's like a confessional aspect to that paragraph that I found quite striking. It gave me a sense that you are a little conflicted about the work that you do.
0: Oh, totally. Yeah, I'm totally conflicted about the work that I do.
1: Well, here's the the other question that I had basically coming out of that story with Trump is like, if you have in your head when you see him, this fucking guy. Why is this what you're doing with your life? Like, it just seems like I don't know. You seem conflicted about it. I'd like to explore that.
0: <laughs> well, I did miss therapy this week, so this is perfect for me. I'm glad that I'm glad that we you want to talk about this. Um, <laughs> I, when I say this fucking guy, I mean it's more just like I've never gotten over the fact that he was elected president. I'm fascinated that this happened. I mean, this is the most fucked up, insane story certainly of my lifetime and I you know happened to be there at the beginning and I felt like an obligation and still feel an obligation to see this thing through it never occurred to me that I would not see it through
1: well that doesn't sound very conflicted at all
0: well I'm conflicted about like the whole enterprise like I'm conflicted about the kind of uncomfortable role that I feel like I'm sometimes in writing the type of stories that I write by which I mean, like writing stories that explain or make judgments about who people are and the type of people that they are and what their motives are and what their beliefs are and the okayness of those beliefs. Like I feel conflicted about my role as like a deeply flawed person being responsible for the reputations of others. And I feel conflicted about my role and the platform that I have and like whether or not I'm always asking whether or not I'm being responsible enough. I mean, this is kind of what's funny about, like, a lot of times I get criticism from people and it just, like, comes from this, like, place of, like, absolute hatred clearly. Like, I could, like, write my own suicide note and people would be like, ah, like, well, she wasn't, it wasn't good enough. Like, she had a misspelling there. Like, she was too humanizing to herself in her suicide note. Like, um, and I just always, like, I try not to engage anymore, but I always just want to be like, look, like, I agree with you probably. Like, I also hate myself. And I also am not sure that I did this properly. And like, I will be asking myself if I did this properly until like the day that I die or I find another career that like consumes me. Um,
1: what is doing it properly? Like, what does that mean? What's the criticism that you feel like you get that, that you're humanizing people in the administration?
0: Humanizing is definitely the criticism that I've most consistently gotten. But I, I mean, I don't I view that as my job to humanize people even if they are horrible people. My mandate, as far as I'm concerned, when I profile people is to get as much detail and as much insight as possible and to present it with as much context as possible. I want to humanize people. I don't want to provide excuses for people. I don't think that I do that. Um, I certainly try to never do that. And I think that it is my job to humanize people. So I don't really, I have a hard time taking seriously that specific criticism. But most criticism, I'm like, you know, way ahead of you on that. Like I like I also am upset with myself that I like maybe didn't do a good enough job with whatever it is that like you're mad at me about. Um so I don't I don't really take it like very hard anymore because like I may I probably already like agree <laughs> with the criticism <laughs> half the time, you know.
1: What do you feel like you haven't done as well as you wish you had? What's the criticism you agree with is, I guess, what I'm asking.
0: I mean, any piece, like, if I go back and read it, like, I'll find tons of different things that, like, I wish that I had not used that specific word or I wish that I had expanded on this point or thought harder about this or asked more questions about that or, like, it's not like any one thing right. across the board. But I just, I've never like written something and thought like, ah, oh, yes, I've like completed the <laughs> task and like, perfect perfect and like I'll never improve <laughs> upon this.
1: Well, I guess maybe what I was trying to ask about by reading that paragraph to you is it felt like there was something beyond, you know, missing a question here or there in terms of the role you're playing in the system, you know, right. and, and actively seeing yourself as part of the system. Yeah. Um, and providing a space for people who have done bad things to distance themselves from those things.
0: Yeah, I mean, what I meant there, though, what I meant with that was, like, in general, any palace intrigue story is about, usually, who is to blame and who is not to blame for something going wrong, right? And so... Those stories, I mean, on the one hand, I think those stories have been incredibly valuable. Like we have learned a great deal about what was happening in that White House and why decisions were being made or why decisions weren't being made, why they were getting certain things done, why they weren't getting things done. Like any information that we could get about how things were working in there, how they were not working, I thought was in the public interest. But at the same time, you know, every source has their ax to grind. And I also think, you know, in the Trump era, I didn't get into this in the piece. And if I had had more time, maybe I would have found a way to articulately expand on this. But like, I think in the Trump era, there's kind of been this bias towards sources, if that makes sense. I think that probably always exists but i think if you read some of the coverage of jared kushner or you read a bob woodward book you know there is a reason why some people come out looking better than others uh, or why some people are blamed and others aren't and i think it has to do with that bias towards sources and i kind of am always thinking about these questions even when i am a part of the system you know, like, is it a, it's a good thing to get more information about whatever is happening inside the White House. I believe that's almost always true. But the way that we get it, the people that we have to rely on, I mean, it's kind of like, a lot of it feels pretty gross, even if it's like, you know, totally ethically above board, you're not doing anything wrong, you've got your agreements that you're not violating with your source and, like, you have tried to confirm in as many ways as possible and you're reasonably sure that what you're writing is true, it can still feel pretty gross. And I'd be curious to know if, like, people disagree with me, other reporters who do this disagree with me. Like, maybe I'm just, like, too sensitive (laughs) to do this. Um, I don't know. But, like, I think it feels pretty gross a lot of the time.
1: Just hold my hand a little bit. When you say it's gross, what do you mean?
0: I mean, a lot of people it's no surprise to anyone who has like read the news in the last 5 6 years, like a lot of people in the president's orbit and the president himself are gross. And like, you know, you've got to deal with these people. And that can feel bad, and that can feel gross. And then You know, there is just the the whole business of anonymity. It's not like we're talking about whistleblowers, right? Like that's a whole different thing. But when we're talking about anonymous people shit talking (laughs) on each other. (laughs) Right. Other anonymous people or shit talking the president (laughs) or talking about how they fucked X, Y, or Z up or whatever it is. You know, sometimes I'm like gleeful about the news that I was getting or gleeful about like the leak that I was getting and also have felt like conscious of my own icky space in this. Like I I remember Mm -hmm. once writing a story about um, there was some press person, spokesperson for the White House who starting to like get more and more FaceTime on Fox News and like going out there spinning for the White House. And it turned out that uh, he was uh, at the RNC during 2016 and somebody leaked his like G chats to me and like emails to me where he was, like, not only, like, talking about not liking Donald Trump, but, like, talking about how they could sabotage Donald Trump. So, like, it seemed relevant, you know, it seemed like news to me that, like, the White House had, like, yet another person who had, like, hated Trump out there as, like, the spokesperson spinning on behalf of Donald Trump. And not only did he hate Donald Trump and, like, say so, but he also like wanted to sabotage Donald Trump from within the RNC. It seemed like a story to me, you know, I was not concerned about like whether or not it was legit to report it, if it was accurate, which it was, but at the same time, it's like, oh, like this person's enemies within are like trying to shiv him and like, I'm helping them do that. And that's gross. But, you know, it was a story.
1: You were saying earlier that um, they wasted half a day doing this, like... At least, uh, at least half a day. Right, <laughs> doing this, like, ridiculous play for you, trying to deny a thing that was totally inevitable and true. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the thing you were saying was, like, imagine what they would have done with that half a day if they hadn't, like, blown it doing this dumb play for me. It seems like y- you have some connection to the real-world stakes... Of what the administration was capable of and what they were able to do. And I, I wonder how connected to that you have been over the last four years. Like what what these people actually meant for the world and for people's lives. How well, present has that been for you?
0: It has felt it feels totally disconnected from the Palace Intrigue stories, right? Like even if what you're talking about, even if the Palace Intrigue story is like about someone fucking up something or making an enemy about a child separation policy. Let's say just like, for instance, I don't think I ever wrote a palace intrigue story directly related to that policy, but let's say it was about that. Like the palace intrigue stories often felt totally divorced from whatever the actual like fight was over internally, if that makes sense, like the personality yeah. dramas and conflicts often felt like they had nothing to do with the specific policy fights of the day and part of that was that like there were not very many policies like immigration is unfortunately one of the only areas besides the courts and besides tax reform where they got anything done and you know why did they get that done because there was an extraordinarily powerful member of the staff who had the president's blessing who cared very much about this and spent all of his time getting things done on that. You know, I remember talking to the anonymous Republican about this in that piece that we were talking about, where he was talking about how, you know, it was broadly a good thing that Trump was fundamentally a pretty lazy guy, as I think he called him, who liked to watch TV and call up his buddies on the phone, because if that were not the case if they were remotely competent, if they had any idea how to organize themselves or how to organize an agenda or execute an agenda, the country would probably be a lot worse off. And so, I mean, I think there's always this kind of, I think two things were often true at the same time with Trump. And I think Chappelle hosted SNL the night before where you and I are talking now, and I'm paraphrasing, I can't remember exactly what he said, but I think he said, like, how could someone be so terrible and so fucking hilarious at the same time or something like that? And I think yeah. that that is kind of true of a lot of the moments in the Trump administration where, like, is at once terrifying and unbelievable that any human beings could be, like, so lacking in empathy. Could be so selfish and completely hilarious that Trump is like fucking it up in whatever way he's fucking it up or unable to talk about it in a semi coherent normal way. And so that doesn't really answer your question, I guess. Well, I
1: think that that's a much better articulation of the setup for my question. And I think my question is like, how did it feel to spend your time on the hilarious part, knowing that the terrible part was right there too.
0: I mean, it depends. I I, like, there were moments where, like I remember the day that um, ProPublica had published audio of um, children at the border, screaming and crying who had been separated from their parents, and I remember like that story broke like I want to say like half an hour, maybe it was like an hour before there was a scheduled press briefing with Kirsten um, Nielsen, who at the time was at DHS, and Sarah Huckabee Sanders, who at the time was uh, the press secretary. And I remember being in the briefing room, and hearing, like, every couple of minutes, like, someone would be listening to the audio or, like, reading the ProPublica piece. And you would just kind of, like, hear this, like, excruciating sound of the audio of the children crying. And then at the same time, there were some other, like, old-timers there walking by. And, like, I don't know if they were camera guys or, like, part of some news crew. And they were just kind of, like, laughing and joking and talking about, like, whatever... And I remember just feeling, like, really sick to my stomach that, like, this could be just, like, any other job if you're here for a long time, that you could hear something like that and not stop and, like, be sick and want to figure out, like, how the fuck it had happened. So there were moments where the incompetence... And all of the factors that contributed to the Intrigue stories were that clashed with the horrific effects that the administration was having throughout the country when the White House actually accomplished something that they wanted to accomplish. And so I, I am very sympathetic to the view of the anonymous Republican in this case, who thought that, you know, for as much shit as Trump gets for being totally inept, that that was actually a great thing for the country. (laughs) Because if he was not such a fucking idiot, God knows how much worse it would have been.
1: Olivia, did you like these people?
0: No, you know, there are some sources who I do like, but even sources that I have like good relationships with, I find completely appalling. But there's a difference between, you know, there's some sources who I find their decisions or I find what they've done appalling, but I am interested in understanding them still, you know, and like interested in how they're managing to live with themselves and what their journey is going to be like in a post-Trump world. And like, I am curious about that and I will follow that just as a study and like, what human beings are capable of in terms of, like, deluding themselves. I think it's fascinating. Um, And then there are other people who are, like, genuinely fucking terrifying and, like, I would not speak to under any circumstance. (laughs) And, like, if I see them in a room, like, I walk in the other direction.
1: Do you think that they know that?
0: Oh, yeah. I'm not, like, you know, shy about telling people if I think they're terrible.
1: With all the, like machinations with all the like maneuvering you know there are aspects of it that feel like a game and there's so Mm -hmm. many aspects of it that feel like a kind of reality show you know including that scene you described in the oval office how do you find something real amidst all of that bullshit
0: how do i figure out what is true or how do I figure out like what this is spiritually about?
1: <laughs> oh, I'll take answers on both of those.
0: <laughs> I mean, I didn't go to J school or any school, but like if the rule is that you are supposed to have like two independent sources confirming the same thing, like that's like not fucking how this works in the Trump white house. Right. Like I might have, I might have like five sources telling me independently Like, I have that, you can't see me, but in air quotes independently, that, like, something is true and, like, I still won't believe that it's true because, like, everyone talking to me is a lunatic and I know that they all have a specific (laughs) reason why they want this thing to be reported. That has happened a million times over the last four years. And then there are times when, like, I know people are in cahoots lying to me about something not being true, but I have, like, one or two sources who... Are telling me that it is true and like I'm just going to go with them because I actually sort of trust those people much more than I trust the bunch of people telling me it's not true so like it's really I didn't rely on like J school guidelines for reporting in the past because I did not go to J school but like I imagine that if I had that type of background like I would have had to like throw out my rule book on a lot of these things during this administration because it's just not you're not dealing with normal people who have like any obligation to the truth you know you're dealing with people who are completely comfortable lying about literally anything if it suits them um so it's like a total mindfuck
1: (laughs) yeah it seems like it
0: yeah it's like completely it's a total mindfuck and then like spiritually true i mean i guess i just spent a lot of time thinking about like what it must be like to be these awful people. And some of them I have like no interest, or I don't think that there is a there there spiritually, right? Like there are people who I I'm not interested in exploring because I can sense that there is no depth, that there is no I don't need people to be like redeemable, but like I need them to not just be completely sociopathic, I guess. And there are a lot of completely sociopathic people in the president's orbit and in the administration. And so those people I'm not terribly interested in usually, <laughs> <laughs> but you know, and then the other thing is like, I I guess I viewed my like mandate at the beginning of all this. And I, I still view it this way as like being about understanding The people who are in power or the people who are influencing the people in power and you know those aren't always going to be like the most interesting worthwhile people you know in in the Trump world but like I still think that there's value in understanding them and I also just find that like Even This is even true, like, at a Trump rally, if you're, like, walking through the, like, tailgate section on the way to check in at the media desk, like, the same people who will, like, scream at you that you're fake news when Trump, like, tells them to turn around and look at you uh, and, like, hiss at you. um, They're, like, really happy to talk to you. And granted, like, I am a a white woman who is not greeted with suspicion at Trump rallies on site. And I realize, like, that's a tremendous privilege in a context like that reporting, like that I don't feel genuinely unsafe. But it's always interesting to me that those people who will hiss at you and scream at you are so eager to share with you like anything about themselves and about their lives and about their beliefs. And I think it's the same thing that drives the people in the Trump administration who go on TV to call you fake news, to like call you late at night to tell you how they're feeling like they just desperately want to be understood and they desperately want some kind of audience for the way that they try and rationalize what they do. So I guess a lot of the time, like it finds me, <laughs> I guess, or I like bump into it.
1: So the, the way, part of the way that you think about your job then is just um, sort of like being available to to whatever that spiritual truth is coming out of the White House.
0: Yeah, and, like, a lot of the times, like, the spiritual truth is just, like, that this is completely bankrupt. Like, you know, I don't think that, like, broadly speaking, this is a group of redeemable people. Like, not at all. But I do think that there is tremendous value in this first draft of history trying to understand, like, why the fuck they are like this. And like, oftentimes that's one of the questions that I ask people sometimes. And like, I ask it like kind of in a jokey way and sometimes people just laugh, but like I, at some point writing a profile always ask like, why are you like this? (laughs) Um, And I I think that there is, and I have to think in order to do what I do, this is very self-serving, but like I have to think that there is value in understanding why these people are like this because they are the reason why we are here in this situation. And I think it's an answer that, like, historians will try to answer years from now. And, like, I view my job some days if I'm being, like, you know, if I'm inflating my own ego, like, I view my job as, like, providing fodder for that in some ways. And, like, some days it's just I just write things that are totally stupid and meaningless and, like, no one (laughs) needs to know whether or not Andrew Cuomo has a nipple ring, you know. But, like, a lot of the time... Um,
1: I'm going to make sure that one's in the show
0: notes. (laughs) Um, But, um, you know, it's very strange. It's been very strange to be here in Washington during this. And I kind of, at the end of it now... I keep thinking, like, oh, fuck, like, all these stories that, like, have occurred to me that, like, I haven't completed yet, like, I'm, like, really running out of time to do and, like, to document what these people think or how they explain X, Y, or Z in this moment before it ends, right, before, like, hindsight is kicked in. And so I kind of feel, like, uh, our editor-in-chief, David Haskell, messaged me today asking me, like, how I was and, like, other editors have been, like, oh, like... you want to take a break? And I'm like, I I don't want to take a break until like the absolute last second of this, because I still feel like I have so much that I want to document about this insane era.
1: So you feel like uh, the clock is running out on the time with which you can document this totally insane era that you've been living through. But there's this other part of it, which is like, In the uh, pie chart of your career, this totally insane era we've been living through is like a pretty significant slice. Yeah. Like this is mostly what you've done, right?
0: Yeah. I mean, I started the first time I ever interviewed Trump, I was 22. And the first full-time reporting job I had, I was covering what became the 2016 primary field. And so I was covering Chris Christie, Rand Paul, Rick Perry, and then I got assigned Donald Trump. And, you know, all this time later, I'm still covering Donald Trump. <laughs> um, and I I was interviewing uh, Mary Trump, his niece, who wrote a truly fantastic book about, uh, about her family and her uncle. I read like, not every single Trump book to come out the last couple of years, but I've read like most of them and it's far away the best one because she just has insight that nobody else has. But I was saying to her, I was like, you know, a lot of times, like you'll hear like older women talk about how they like wasted their twenties on like a bad boyfriend or something. And I'm like, I feel like I like have spent all of my twenties on like your uncle. <laughs> it's like <laughs> really, really fucked up. But like, that's it's true. I'm like, you know, he is just, from the second that he announced until now, I've covered him basically every day.
1: And so how does it make you feel that it's coming <laughs> to an end?
0: Well, I'm excited to be creative again, if that makes sense. Like, I, um, I feel like when I was first starting out, I was always very excited to go cover something and to like, Notice the detail everyone passed by or find some kooky character, someone that nobody else was talking to and tell the story that way. And in the Trump administration, all of those people that I was interested in, like literally all of them sometimes, like the Sam Nunbergs and Alex Joneses of the world, they became like central to the actual story. (laughs) And like that's a very strange thing to have happen, like, where you're, like, weird interests, like, in conspiracy theories and, like, info wars, where that becomes, like, relevant to, like, the federal government and, like, how it's functioning. Um, But, like, there has been, he's really stifled Trump, has really stifled creativity in some ways, or I feel like he has, because the central story has been very obvious, you know, and, like, You don't have to be a great journalist to gaze upon what's unfolding here and like identify (laughs) the interesting part and so I don't know how I feel yet but like to the extent that I've stopped to think at all about like what comes after January 20th I've just thought about like a whole list of people that like I'm excited to go profile and like who are not Donald Trump but I'm also very excited about covering Donald Trump in winter like I think that that will be a fascinating story and I'm looking forward to writing it
1: hey Olivia thank you for doing this
0: yeah thank you for having me
1: Thanks for listening to Longform. I'm Max Linsky. My co-hosts are Aaron Lammer and Evan Ratliff. Our editor is Janelle Pfeiffer, and our intern is Susan Peterson. Thanks to them. Thanks to our friends and sponsors at MailChimp for making this show possible. And thanks, most of all, to Olivia Newsy for taking some time on what I think was a pretty crazy week at the end of four pretty crazy years. It was a pleasure to talk to her. And... um, I'm looking forward to uh, what she does next. We'll see you next week.